The Hazy Podcast is brought to you by EK the DJ and Michael Reed. Join them each season as they discuss the adventures contained in various audiobooks. This season, they'll be providing reactionary commentary on the So I Got Hazed audiobook by Michael Reed. August 28th, Strike 2. I woke up a few hours later, remembering everything that I had experienced the night before. I wasn't excited to call my dad and tell him I had gotten an alcohol charge. I was going to need money for a lawyer. I decided if I was going to keep partying, it would be a good idea to continue journaling each night. It was either that, or stay up the whole night so I wouldn't black out and forget. Writing things down in a book seems so much better than trying to remember events years later and having zero recollection. This way, when I drove my kids to college and they wanted to hear my stories, I could just give them a book. I decided I was going to wait until the weekend was over before I called my dad. There wasn't any reason to call him right away. Instead, I decided to do a little research and find out what my punishment was going to be for receiving the citation. That way, I could relay the information I found to my dad. I thought it may also be possible that I didn't need a lawyer at all, and maybe I could skimp with a public defender or self-representation. I spent the rest of the day doing my student thing, studying in the first building for a few hours. Studying in the first building was a requirement of my admission because my GPA was so low when I got into school. The requirement was that I spend 20 hours a week in the first study hall. This was to ensure that my grades would get better in college. Students checked in and out using their student ID. When I was over studying, I went back to my dorm room. Spending the rest of the day in my room made me feel a lot more relaxed from the night before. When it rolled around to 8 p.m., I heard everyone on my floor start getting ready to go out partying. I could hear people pre-gaming in their rooms, something that wasn't allowed, but I suppose neither was pot. There were crowds of people leaving together to go party. I planned to stay in for the rest of the night to avoid getting any more charges. I forgot to close my door, and around 9pm, Patrick O'Connor showed up to my room, and he brought company. He came with a shorter guy with glasses, who looked quite nerdy, but was still cooler than me. Patrick introduced me to Eric, who was also in the same fraternity as Patrick. They were throwing a few parties that night at multiple houses, and wanted me to come. They had a 10pm party at their main chapter house, a midnight party at the house that two fraternity brothers shared, and finally, a late night party at 2am. I was now somewhat interested because a small group of freshman girls had formed outside my room behind Patrick. They were completely in awe that three parties were going to be thrown sequentially by the same fraternity. I told him as appealing as it all sounded, I wasn't interested. The girls in the hallway showed surprise because they all wanted to go, and I didn't. Eric convinced them all that they had to be at these parties. The girls quickly scattered back to their rooms to reassess their wardrobes for the evening. Now that it was just the guys, I explained to Patrick and Eric that I had gotten a charge the night before. They told me that it happens for the first three weeks of school every year. Cops go hard to get freshmen underage possession of alcohol tickets. They kept asking me to come out. I resisted the best I could until Eric said that we should go to his house and smoke weed. Then I could decide from there if I wanted to go to any of their parties. He had me sold. It was awesome to have another place off campus to go and smoke, other than Kirk's friend's place and the sorority house on the corner. 
I was pretty happy to be expanding my social circle and resources with every new day. Patrick, Eric, and I walked to what felt like the furthest street on the light side of the town. We were about four blocks away from the main campus street. Eric lived in an old renovated church that was remodeled into condos. As soon as we got to Eric's front door, Eric asked if I smoked weed. I said, yeah, of course, that's why I'm here. I remember this so well because I'm like, this dude asked me if I wanted to smoke weed and that's why I came. Why is he again asking me? <laughs> and then your apartment door opened and I knew why you were asking me for realsies. <laughs> he opened up the apartment door and the sweetest smell of ganja permeated into the air. His apartment was a decent size and had a drum set in a large living room. Eric was glad that I liked weed because he said he and his roommate, Alexi, had some pretty dank weed. When we walked in, his roommate introduced himself to me. Hey, I'm Chippy. Nice to meet you. Alexi's last name was Hekovichip, so everyone called him Chippy. His long last name was too hard to pronounce quickly. Chippy had dreadlocks and he was the first person I had met in my life that had them. I assumed that he would have good weed, being a Rasta head and all. As soon as we finished the introductions, Patrick O'Connor said that he was going to run across the road to some guy named Callum Anders' house. He left, and there I was alone with two guys that I had just met. In this situation, it was okay that I was left alone with Chippy and Eric, because we all clicked and got along right away. Chippy offered me my first gravity bong hit. The gravity bong was just that, a gravity-fed bong. They used a two-liter soda bottle inside a pitcher. It was a perfect fit. The lid to the soda bottle had a tool socket mounted into the top of it, and that's where the weed was packed. The pitcher was filled with water and even had a tiny ping-pong ball inside of the soda bottle. Before I took my first hit, Chippy instructed me by demonstration. Chippy pushed the soda bottle down so its cup bottom was touching the bottom of the pitcher. He then screwed on the cap that had the socket in it. He packed weed into the socket and lit it up. As he was lighting, he began pulling the bottle up with his other hand, an acquired skill from what I could see. The more and more the bottle was pulled out of the pitcher, the more it filled with smoke. Chippy continued pulling the bottle up slowly, as not to create too big of a vacuum. He stopped pulling when the bottle's cut base was just below the surface of the water. A perfect bong hit was created. He unscrewed the cap and set his lighter down, kicked his dreadlocks around the side of his head, and proceeded to get right. He took the hit by slowly inhaling as he pushed the two-liter soda bottle back into the pitcher. At the very end of the hit, the ping-pong ball stopped at the top of the soda bottle. He said, Your turn, and packed some weed into the socket. I paused before taking my hit, and asked, What's the ping-pong ball for? They both smiled and told me that smart people use ping-pong balls in their gravity bongs because it stops them from getting water in their mouth if they push down too fast. They said it only happens if the soda bottle is pushed down too fast. I mimicked what Chippy did, and created a beautiful toke for myself. I pushed down fast at first, and started to see the water climb towards the lip of the pitcher. 
I slowed the hit down before I created an embarrassing overflow. The hit was awesome, and it made me cough uncontrollably. Chippy had some super dank, and I was thankful that I had met him. We smoked for a bit, and they asked me the standard college questions. What's your major? Where are you from? What do you do for fun? Are you coming to our parties tonight? We talked for a little bit. I asked them the same questions, and we started learning about one another. They told me that they were both in the same fraternity as Patrick was. It was named SIG-H, and stood for Sigma, Iota, Gamma, Eta. I was still new to the Greek alphabet, and had a lot of letters to learn if I wanted to remember what sororities had the hottest girls in them. After we were nice and high, the guys offered me some beer. I declined and said I was going back to the dorms. Just as I was about to leave, Patrick came back into the apartment, without knocking. I thought that that was somewhat rude, but then they explained that all of their fraternity houses were usually unlocked. They had an open-door policy. I told everyone I was going to leave, and I re-explained that I got an alcohol ticket the night before. Jippy and Eric showed some compassion for my situation. They told me that I would be safe if I was in their fraternity house drinking. Patrick added, I'll even stick with you and make sure nothing bad happens. And besides, what are the chances you're going to get a ticket again tonight? You've already gotten your strike. He was right. I was just stupid and out of my element. I had to be a little more alert and aware of my surroundings to avoid trouble in college. Patrick and I planned to hit the town with force. We went back to his house to pregame some more. He lived with a few sorority girls that were also sweethearts of Sig Age. His house was known as the Sweetheart House in his fraternity. I didn't understand what sweethearts were, so I asked Patrick. Sweethearts are members of the fraternity that take care of the brothers. It's like having a sister, but more of the cheerleader type. Sweethearts make sure our pledges don't quit by helping them keep their minds straight. He took a long pause and another bong hit, as I sat staring at him, still not fully understanding. He continued. They are also known as frat mats that sleep with our brothers. They help us set up parties, bring more girls to our parties, and arrange mixers, since all the sweethearts were in sororities or on sports teams. Now I understood. Sweethearts were awesome. Patrick and I drank some beers for an hour and smoked out of a small bubbler he had. I was making a lot of weedhead friends in college quickly. When it got closer to 10 p.m., we both went over to his fraternity house. The house was more than five feet above street level, which made it look like a castle. It was massive. So massive that it was divided into two units. One unit belonged to the fraternity, and the other belonged to some students. Several steps led from the sidewalk to the front lawn. The front lawn was quite large and led to a massive front deck. It was a two-story Victorian-style house. There were pillars outside the front door and large bay windows on the bottom and top floors. Patrick led me past a few people talking on the lawn and into the house. He wanted to give me a tour of the bottom floor before the party got crazy. When we walked in the front door, I took notice of the long staircase that wrapped around up to the second floor. The room we were in was a large party room, and it was almost empty. The only furniture in the room was a bar in the corner with DJ equipment on it. Wires led from the table to speakers in each room of the house. The room led to two other rooms, 
one straight ahead, and another room to the left, with a double door frame. The room straight ahead would be used as a dining room in a normal house. The room had no furnishings. Instead, in the center of the room sat a keg in an ice bucket. The other room, with the larger door frame, led to a custom-made bar room. It had a bar running along one half of the room and sofas on the other. The bar had a bunch of five-gallon Gatorade jugs on it. They contained the fraternity's special party mix called Red Panty Droppers. The fraternity made them at all their parties. On the opposite side of the house was a large kitchen. The kitchen led to a foyer that exited to the house's enclosed back porch. The foyer was almost as large as my dorm room. It even had a storage room closet. The foyer was connected to a screened-in porch that led out to the backyard. While we talked, he showed me around the backyard and then led me back into the house. The backyard was a decently sized lot that stretched to a back road. The road ran from a bar beside campus all the way to Chippy and Eric's apartment. After Patrick was done giving me the tour, he led me straight towards the keg. He gave me a cup and said, this is your house cup. Whenever you want another beer, you just come find me and I'll get a refill for you right away. No lines and no waiting to get a drink, unless one of my brothers is grabbing a drink. So it's kind of hard to explain to anybody listening, but essentially this house is like a circle racetrack. You could continuously just run around the house because it doesn't have doors on the main floor. Another another important thing about this house is that You'd you'd already said like it was this large Victorian side of the house, and what you described was just the first floor, and not just the first floor, but only half of the first floor because the other half of the house was shared with another, like a, there was another apartment that was attached. Yeah, so in this being Victorian split house, with students on the other side, this house would have been twice as big. Right. The house was an absolute showstopper and it wasn't even considered one of the large houses on campus. When I started complimenting the size of the house, Patrick told me that there are bigger houses. He said that the biggest house on campus belonged to the New Alpha fraternity. It was the same house that I had smoked weed on the porch of two nights earlier. The house had over 13 bedrooms, and it was four stories tall. Patrick made me feel at home right away, and the night had just begun. One of my friends always said that she pictured me becoming a frat boy as soon as I got to college. I think that she may have been onto something. I did want to become a social butterfly, and frat parties were a great place to meet lots of new people. I decided to hang out with Patrick for the rest of the night to see just how awesome these parties were. Patrick and I spent the next few hours at his fraternity's house party. It was one of the best times I had in my first few weeks at school. It went from an empty mansion to a crowded party. The size of the parties was quite overwhelming for a little freshman. When I wanted to move around the house, I had to shuffle through people while I was turned sideways. I made sure to keep my cup in the air so I wouldn't spill it on myself or someone else nearby. There were so many beautiful, tanned women all over the house. Everyone was young and having a great time together. The newest and coolest rap songs blared across the loudspeakers. Patrick took me around, and he introduced me to all of his fraternity brothers. 
A lot of them seemed somewhat reserved when talking to him. It was as if he was the ugly duckling in the family, or something to that effect. Patrick introduced me to Celeste and Claire, two very hot juniors that he was friends with. Celeste had blonde hair and was taller than most women. She was about 5 foot 8 and had long legs, big breasts, and an okay looking face. Her skin was pale like mine. It was great. Now there was another person at the party that I could talk to about the life of bathing in sunscreen. Claire was shorter, tanner, a little thicker, and had bigger breasts than Celeste. She had brunette hair and a smile that looked like a grin. It looked like she had a mischievous side that she had hidden away. Patrick told me that Celeste and Claire lived in the house behind his, dubbed the Squirrel House. Why do they call it the Squirrel House? I asked. Patrick and the girls just smiled and laughed. My question was completely ignored. The girls asked if any other SIG age parties were going on that night. Patrick told them that there were two more parties that night. Why did they call it the Squirrel House, Eric? I can't remember. What do squirrels do? Well, they hide their nuts. They collect nuts. <sighs> oh, no. The second party would start when the beer ran out at the first party. We hung out at the fraternity house until the kegs were running low. Celeste and Claire were nowhere to be seen, but Patrick stuck with me. Patrick suggested that we head to the next party before too many other people started heading there. I agreed, and we left together, not hand in hand, but cups in hand. I tried to pay attention to the direction I needed to run to get back to my dorm if I got into any trouble. The next party we went to was close to the fraternity house. It was slightly adjacent to where the fraternity house was. All we had to do was cut through the backyard, through the alley, and we were at the next party. When we walked inside, there was only one keg, but that was okay. I was already on the verge of being so intoxicated that I wouldn't be making a journal entry later in the night. I told myself that I didn't care about some shit journal. I just wanted to have fun. There were about 40 people at the party, and I was meeting tons of new people. I saw the jock that I thought was a cop taking apple pie shooters. I wanted to try the apple pie shooters, so I introduced myself to him without fear. We took a few apple pie shooters together, and it turned out we had a lot more in common than I thought. His name was John Knowles, and he was from Pennsylvania. He had short, dirty blonde hair and a huge muscular build. John played football in high school, and he loved to smoke weed. When he told me that he loved to smoke weed, we instantly connected. John and I's personalities fed off one another. He was much funnier than I was, but together, we were a comedic duo. John said that he had smoked some G13 with Paul Knox earlier in the week. He went on to tell me he had some AK-47 weed if I wanted to go outside and smoke with him. I pulled out my trusty one-hitter, and we went out onto the porch of the white fraternity house. His weed was nothing short of amazing. I was completely blazed now. It sent me to a new level of drunk. I was having a great time, but Patrick was getting bored. He had been to hundreds of these parties, I was sure, and he knew everyone already. When I was spending time with John, he seemed to get jealous as well. 
He kept telling me that we should go to the last SIGAGE party down the street. We stayed at the second party for about an hour before leaving. In that hour, John Knowles and I had become best buds. Patrick took me to the final SIGAGE party. It was pretty late, and there were still parties going on everywhere. This would be the last party I had energy for that night. I had to stay close to Patrick, so wherever he went, I went. I wasn't familiar with Greek life and college scenes yet. I had to be careful with what I did and said because I could get another ticket at any moment. I didn't want to be like the guys in the stories that Veronica told me. I wanted to be something completely different, and to do that, I just had to be as outgoing as possible. Just before we got to the last SIGAGE party, some guy recognized Patrick O'Connor from the balcony of another party. He shouted, O'Connor, up here, bro! He invited Patrick up to the house, and Patrick told me that he'd just be a minute. Patrick said I could head over to the fraternity house and pointed straight ahead. I could see two tiny houses behind a large sorority house. He said that one of the tiny houses belonged to Doug, one of his brothers. Just say you know Patrick O'Connor and that we are partying together. When I walked over, it seemed like there wasn't too many people outside. I wish I had stayed at the last party. This party had more of a late night vibe. I walked over and introduced myself to the eight or so people around the keg. The keg was outside of the two small houses. I was given a cup when I finally introduced myself to the right person as O'Connor's friend. I went over to the keg and began filling my cup. While filling up my cup, I noticed a familiar face from high school. Her name was Veronica. There were so many Veronicas on campus. There was just so many people. I could see why everyone used nicknames and last names to identify their friends. Veronica and I began talking about our experiences at the college so far. I wasn't precisely sure where Patrick was. I knew he was at the balcony party, but I couldn't see him. I had no idea why he sent me on my way and then ditched me. I didn't know any of these people. They were all just acquaintances. If I didn't take it upon myself to make introductions, they wouldn't even be acquaintances. I decided I'd hang out and talk to Veronica. I slowed down my consumption a little bit, so I wouldn't vomit all over her face, should the conversation lead to something. We continued talking and reminiscing about high school. When she finished her cup, I offered to refill it. After Veronica's cup was full, I started filling up my cup. When I was filling up my cup, Veronica poured her freshly filled cup out on top of the keg. At that moment, I had no idea why she just poured her beer out. I thought that maybe she could smell the vomit forming in my throat, or maybe a bug got in her drink. I looked up, and in the darkness of the night, I could faintly see two uniformed police officers heading straight towards us. The two police officers were almost completely camouflaged. There wasn't a whole lot of light in the area we were in, except for a few porch lights from the sorority house behind us. I had spent the summer before college jogging five miles every day through the state park by my house. It was my ritual, followed by 30 minutes of boxing cardio. I wanted to maintain good health and make my muscles more toned. I was not a fighter by any means, but I was in incredible cardiovascular shape. With that in mind, I still didn't think I had enough distance to get away from the cops. They were less than 15 feet from me. They were both holding clipboards with stacks of citations, 
ready to make some money for the city. I had some weed and a one-hitter in my pocket, and I was not about to get in trouble two nights in a row. If I got caught with the weed and one-hitter, I would get a possession of marijuana ticket on top of another underage possession of alcohol ticket. I was boxed into a corner between the two conjoined houses, so I had to run towards the cops to try and get away. I started my mad dash and whipped around the corner of the house. I ran by a few seniors that were also outside drinking. I made it about 20 feet before I just stopped and gave up. I didn't know the area well enough to run back to my dorm. More importantly, since I had just been busted the night before for the same thing, it wasn't worth running if I couldn't get away. When I stopped, a cop grabbed me and threw me onto the hood of a nearby car. My face hit the windshield, and I felt instant bloody dampness around my forehead and the right side of my face. So to get away from these cops, I have to run 20 yards towards them to get around this house and then start running left. So now it's like an equal distance and I've burnt a little bit of gas by doing this initial sprint. So you give up. I made it past the Delta Mu house and I didn't know which direction to go because Patrick O'Connor had led me there. So I'm lost. And then as I'm like getting my bearings, this dude grabbed me so hard and put my face into some poor girl's car that I guarantee she wasn't able to get an insurance claim on. Tisk tisk. The cop told me he was going to give me a ticket for serving booze to a minor because I ran from him. Even though he had just gone a tad overboard with his detainment, I remained calm and compliant. I hoped that my cooperation would stop them from frisking me. The police officer marched me back over to the keg and told me to sit down on Doug's front steps. When they sat us down, the crowd of eight gathered at the other house to watch. They couldn't fill up their cups until we had moved. I sat beside Veronica while one police officer wrote her a ticket, and the other wrote out mine. He started his routine questioning so he could fill out his paperwork. It was the same thing I had heard the night before, so I interrupted him. Let me just stop you there. Blonde hair, blue eyes, six foot seven, 185 pounds, and my address is... I told him all the information I knew he was going to ask. Then I sadly explained that I had been busted the previous night for underage drinking as well. It had been just over 24 hours, because it was past 2am now, but I managed to get two alcohol tickets in a weekend. He told me that I had to be careful, because if I got a third strike, I might get kicked out of school. The previous night, the officer had mentioned something about getting in trouble on campus too. At the time, I couldn't imagine that everything I got in trouble for off-campus would transfer on-campus as well. I thought that resembled double jeopardy and would be quite unfair. I hadn't heard anything from the campus administration about my first charge yet, but it was still the weekend. Isn't that sort of weird? Like, even to this day, I think that's, like, a very weird... There's. There's probably some legalities that are being broken. That is very weird that a university charges students on campus when they find out they've been in trouble off campus. And I it's, know you sign conduct. Yes, yeah, you sign you sign the student conduct, whatever it is, agreement, charter, but even still. But I'm pretty sure that's why you get in trouble on campus is because of that conduct thing. Like that specific one. 
I figured if I was going to get in trouble on campus, I would hear about it in the coming week. The officer snapped me out of my daze and asked for my ID so he could write down my driver's license number. I reached into the wrong pocket of my khaki shorts and felt my one-hitter. I reached into another pocket to feel a bag of weed. My heart started racing. If I hadn't been so drunk, I may have let on that I had something in my pockets I shouldn't have. I kept my cool and kept reaching into all my pockets to find my ID. The officer asked, Problem, son? When I reached into my last pocket, I found it. I was so lucky because if I said I didn't have it, I would have most likely been searched. I was wearing cargo shorts, so they had like 40 different frickin' pockets in them. And every pocket I reached into just happened to have like drugs or drug paraphernalia. And I'm like, nope, this isn't an ID. Nope, not this one either. No, sir, I replied as I passed him my license. He wrote down some information and gave my license back to me. He gave me a citation and told me that it was for underage possession of alcohol. I had no arguments, and there was no point in arguing anyways. I would argue in court, not in the darkness between two houses with drugs in my pocket. After he gave me the first ticket, he kept writing and gave me a second ticket. I looked at him like a puzzled puppy before he said, As I mentioned before, this is a second ticket. This is because you ran. It's for aiding and abetting the delinquency of a minor. I'm writing the court appearance date far in the future so your lawyer can move both your cases to the same day. The cop didn't even spell abetting correctly. He wrote abetting, which is a closer spelling to abetting, something one would put on a bed. I was pissed off, but at least the two citations I was given were better than a possession ticket. A possession charge would have had me taking regular drug tests, which wouldn't fly in my freshman career. I was sad that I had just gotten two underage tickets in two days. When the cops left, I just stood there in amazement. I could have kept drinking if I wanted to, but I figured that was a bad idea. Patrick came over and said, Dude, what the fuck happened? I told him I had just got a ticket, and he said, Yeah, I know, we saw it from the balcony over there. I was so pissed off at Patrick. Why did he even ask me what had happened if he watched it happen? And why would he promise to stay with me that night if he was going to do the exact opposite? I'm a much older, more experienced man now. I don't hold any sort of ill will or bad feelings towards anybody that has done me wrong in my past for whatever reason, small or big. But I do believe that if you bring a friend into an environment that they're not comfortable in and they haven't done anything to, like, deserve your abandonment, that you should stick with them just to make sure things are cool until you get them back out of that environment. Fair. Although I was angry, there was only one person I could blame for me getting another underage alcohol ticket. Myself. One of Patrick's brothers, who I hadn't met yet, came over to us. He told Patrick he should watch who he brings to his house. He also said to keep a better eye on his underage friends. The guy sort of seemed like a dick. He turned towards me and solidified my feeling. You shouldn't have run. They probably wouldn't have given you a ticket. The truth of the matter is, I should have either run faster or not been there at all. I apologize for having brought any heat to the house. It was a wrong place, wrong time situation. I think that if I would have kept running, that they definitely would have caught me because my 
unfamiliarity with the area would have been to my detriment. And I do also, hell yeah. And I do also believe I would have been searched and that they would have found the drugs. So it was almost a gift that I was lost and didn't know which direction to run. Without a doubt. Now I had to take a little street justice, but I mean, if that's the trade-off and you get to live, then that's a great thing. I told Patrick I wanted to go back to my dorm. I said goodbye and started the hike back. Patrick tried his best to get me to stay. I knew Patrick felt pretty bad, as he should have. But he wasn't the one that had to deal with the citations. When I was walking by the large sorority house, a girl ran up behind me. Wait, she said. I turned around, stopped, and waited for her. What else did I have to lose? When she got closer, she spoke again. Don't let them get you down. Everyone gets a strike or two their first year. Just don't get three, and you'll be fine. I'd hate to see you get kicked out of school in your first semester. I answered somewhat like a snob and asked, Oh yeah? Why's that? She smiled and said, Because then we wouldn't get to see each other again, and that would just be tragic. Have a safe walk. Then she ran back to her party. I had never spoken to this girl before. I didn't even learn her name or have enough time to remember her face. All I knew is that she had witnessed everything that had happened. She probably would have talked to me earlier if I hadn't run like a baby animal away from a charging predator. It reminded me that there are a lot of kind people out there. She didn't have to chase me down and try to make me feel better, but she did. Girls in college were a strange lot. When I got back to my dorm room, I came in so loudly that I startled Ethan awake. I explained to my shithead roommate what had happened. I smoked bowl after bowl in our pitch black room. I was furiously packing weed and blowing smoke through our screen at the same time. So now this this poor guy is in his little bunk bed up in the corner. And I come in furious and slam the door behind me. We've already had a conversation that he feels very uncomfortable about me smoking marijuana in the room. And what do I do but start packing up Bowl after bowl and furiously smoking it out the window. No fucks given. I was so stressed out that I told myself I was never going to go out drinking again. It seemed like all the problems for me occurred when I was around booze in public. Ethan had the audacity to ask me to keep it down because he had an early 8am class. The little corn fucker didn't seem too empathetic of my situation. I felt like pulling Ethan off of his treetop bungalow and beating his face in. I dealt with his shit parents, his lame friends he brought by the room, and his anti-partying persona. The least he could do was feign a little interest. I feel like I might have a little bit of misplaced aggression (laughs) on this guy at this moment. Maybe a little bit. In the writings of this tale, it's only because you guys as the listener and reader haven't heard our relationship devolve. I smoked the rest of my weed, and I finally calmed myself down. I would have to see if Kirk wanted to sell me any weed, or John could smoke me up the next day. After making some detailed notes of my intriguing adventures, I drunkenly fell asleep. So now I'm out of weed weed now. Go ahead, circle back. I want to circle back to uh, the detailed ridiculously informative uh, instructions on how to make a GB and operate it. So nestled away in your book. So I actually, 
That one, while we were re-listening to it, I thought was pretty funny because I'm like, wow, this is a very detailed description of how to take a gravity bong. And then I thought that it would make a great cartoon because it's like this little nerd comes in and these like hippie dudes are trying to teach him how to take a gravity bong before like the inception of the internet. We were just kind of getting online, but you couldn't like type in gravity bong and Google would bring up a picture of a gravity bong. I don't even think there was Google. It was just kind of starting. It's like, this isn't even a real book. It's just all about getting to that point in the book where you realize, oh, oh, it's just a hidden instructable for how to make a, a gravity bong. This book has a lot of hidden instructions. Um, readers do not repeat. I do not encourage, endorse, yada, yada. Are you doing anything in this book that leads to you dying and suing me? Or not in that order. I can't wait to hear what's coming up. <laughs>